Welcome to the Great Face Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith, along with Andres Barbosa. Podcast episode 146. Appreciate you being back in the house. I'm glad to be here, Steve. Thanks. I had to make up for it for the uh, Colombian Wi-Fi episode. No, that was great. The international call-in. Great friend, great contributor, podcast, my podcast coach. Got to get a plug for your hat, Swarthmore. Tell us about it. Yeah, I've uh, worn it before here, but uh, Grant Dill, a tennis player for Swarthmore, he's had him since he was in third grade. I met him. His brother Morgan played for Wake Forest. Started coaching those guys uh, when well, when Grant was in third grade. I want to say Morgan might have been fifth or sixth grade. So it's crazy to think that all these years later, I still keep in touch. Um, Getting long, long time in the game here. So, and then when you add in the fact that uh, last time I had Nicholas Garcia with the Hopkins hat, had him since he was in f- four years old. It's a long, long time. Third grade. I mean, and four. How about four? That's pre-K. With longevity, not many teaching pros get the opportunity to coach someone that number of years. Um, University of Texas, great place to visit. My son was playing a match against the University of Texas and a number of coaches that I've trained that are still based in Texas. So Michael Center was a coach at that time and he allowed us to run a workshop and I had two pads of paper, one like yours and one like mine. And one said five years and one said 10. And it was just to write down someone that you could think of that you've had the opportunity to coach for five years or 10 years. And the lists were very short. The lists were very short. You know, and sometimes it's because uh, the parents, you know, they'll get transferred or they change jobs, they relocate. But many times I, I do think that um, there's too much bopping and shopping, you know, looking for a different coach. But um, and I, I think there's two sides to that. I mean, sometimes, you know, hey, my, my kid's been here for they have to give the coach a fair amount of time, I'd say a year you know, things aren't really improving in a year. It's like, okay, but when people do switch programs, junior programs, many times they just go five or 10 miles down the road with, um, I believe Ed Weiss, you're our fact checker. He was. I, I, he played at Swarthmore. Uh, they won a national championship. What is he? he was a coach. No, he's a player. Oh, okay. So he's a gentleman who uh, was a guest on our podcast. Oh, no. So then wait a minute. There was a book that I, Faulkner. He was a coach? Um, Ed, Fa- Ed Faulkner, um, I believe the you know, coach. You know, in the 60s, I would say that he was the most uh, celebrated or most popular, most well-known tennis teacher. I believe he was right he was up a- there in the 60s. He went to Cornell, and he um, he didn't get a degree. He, he just took classes that would make him a better tennis teacher. And to my knowledge, I mean, in the room behind us, we probably have 500 tennis books. It's the only tennis book written where it shows club players, for example, it's illustrated where they're leading with their elbow. I think too many times in tennis, um, we're just talking about the very best players. So I believe he was the coach of that team, and I think the tennis center is named after him. When I was went to visit Grant uh, last summer, I believe I took a picture and sent it to you that the, the name of the facility was like a big, um, big plaque above the courts. Uh, yeah. I know Ron Woods, who is, um, there's two, two, two coaches I know by the name of Ron Woods. One in Texas, who was very instrumental, leader with the USPTA, and then Ron Woods, 
who is uh, yeah, the first director of player event with USTA. I know he directed uh, Faulkner camps, and they, they may have been on the Swarthmore campus. I feel like he was the coach, but uh, I'm being uh, not taking my job seriously because I can't even confirm that fact. <laughs> with Miami sports, let's go through that. How are the Heat doing? I don't want to do this because we did this in the in March with with the Hurricanes in Florida Atlantic, and they both lost in the semis. So okay, we'll skip that. The Panthers and the uh, and the Heat are up three zero in both series. So let's just keep it as is. And I would, got to watch a hockey game with you now. That's a fun experience. I would say that uh, the Miami Ice were first. Excuse me, the Miami Heat. They were first, and they should have, instead of being the Florida Panthers, they should have had the Miami Heat basketball team and the Miami Ice. I think that would have been cool. No no pun intended. Well, back in the day, they were using the same arena, right? The Miami Arena back in the day? You know, I'm not sure. I remember watching them play back in the day. I, I, um, I wouldn't be able to tell you that. But um, here is something on sports teams. The Vancouver Grizzlies, they didn't quite make it in basketball in Vancouver, and they moved to Memphis, and they should have been the Memphis Presleys. That would have been cool. That would have been good. Even though Elvis is not, I was still not from for, Memphis. He's I from was, Mississippi. I was still looking for Van Beesbrook in the, in the goal tonight, but uh, you told me he's been out of there for a while? Yeah, yeah, he was a fantastic goaltender, but yeah, it's been a few years. The time goes by. Uh, a photo from my son today, he's, uh, 15 years he's uh, been out of high school, and I thought about it, and I go, 50 for me. Ooh, time. Andres is a gentleman who came up with the idea when we don't have a guest in the chair that we put Vic Braden's chair. Um, I have this from the Vic Braden Library. Mike McLaughlin, who's so close to Vic's uh, widow, Melody. Vic loved being on the, it says right here, I'll lift it up. It says, uh, USGA Tennis Sports Science Committee. This is Vic Braden's jacket. And um, with that, Vic loved being on it because of science, but I think that there was, it was amazing that the, he didn't... You can't make it look nice again, Steve. They didn't have him on there every time, and it was just, um, I guess too many times it's, it's the doom and gloom, but... Uh, so this the, is the USA science. Tennis, so where's the story? That, that, that's a USTA. I understand that, but didn't uh, Vic have the rights to USTA and then... Vic had the United States Tennis Academy. I was there. I remember him. He was called the USTA used to be the USLTA, United States Lawn Tennis Association. And they, he, and actually Vic called himself Fat Albert before uh, Bill Cosby did. So Fat Albert said, yeah, no problem. And, you know, no, no discussion on dollars or what have you. Uh, but no, again, Vic Braden, people misinterpreted him so much back in the day because he was just so funny. He was like a professional comedian. But um, the rationale, you know, what's the science behind it? Um, but let's go forward on a few things. Um, well, we got to transition from, from Vic to Andy. We can't go. Oh, we can do that. We can't go in any other order. I mean, yeah, no, I would it, like it that we go in that order. Yeah, we have a little smorgasbord approach here today. Is uh, Yeah, let's do that. I have even have some notes on that. Uh, Andy Fitzell was on. Um, was it Jonathan Stokey? Jonathan Stokey, um, Baseline Intelligence, his podcast. Our listeners can tune in to Jonathan Stokey's uh, Great podcast. podcast. I like listening to it a lot. 
Yeah, a few things about Jonathan. I've never met him, but he's from North Carolina. He's born in 84, same as Matt Clore, who's been a guest on our podcast a couple of times. Uh, Matt's also a North Carolina guy. These two are very good juniors coming up and they had great careers in college. He's from Raleigh. Um, he went to Duke, All-American at Duke, and he was assistant coach at Duke for many years. And now he lives in Charleston, South Carolina. But yeah, I want to make a few comments on that podcast. Well, what uh, stood out to me was that I spoke to Andy the day after, told him I thought it was pretty good, that I enjoyed listening to it. And I'm always a fan when I hear something that I've never heard before. And he mentioned, well, the one that really stuck out to me about that I hadn't heard before was that it takes eight weeks to make a change. And, you know, I guess I'd heard similar stuff similar, but I'd never heard an actual time frame put on it. So I found that to be pretty interesting. He talked about, you know, things that I've heard before that he's talked about, let's say as far as delaying the toss on the serve. I uh, like the other one he gave about if you're not underneath the ball, you've got to swing at about 200 miles an hour to get the ball over the net. So, yeah, he certainly used, uh, he's so close to Vix. I mean, Vix, I think it's, you have to swing 212 miles an hour, have hair on your tongue, and live in a tree if you're good, if you're going to hit by not getting below the ball. You know, even to, even to hit flat, you have to get below the ball because you have to counteract this, the the incoming speed. It's as if when the ball hits the court, it's doing forward somersaults. And I've stated many times on this podcast that my favorite podcast by far was one about brain types. And he went off and discussed it. And, um, you know, you could tell that Jonathan was pretty – interested on the topic so it was yeah with uh i can always listen to andy it was always a fun listen to yeah we'll we'll come back to andy but on jonathan um you could tell that he's tuned into the content i mean just by the questions he's asked and um well i've seen and i've seen him on his instagram page that he references the great base a lot and you know Oh, that's great. That's great to hear because we have many ghost followers. And does, you know, has gone off and he'll demonstrate drills that he does on his page and then he gives credit to Great Base. And then, but, uh, you know, it made me long for the days of COVID when uh, you and Andy were coming out with daily content. With um, Nick White, um, who spent so much time with us as a player, then as a coach. He's been a former guest on our podcast. He's now the head coach at Skidmore. He was a coach at Duke when Jonathan was, you know, so they both were uh, under Randy, uh, Stan Smith's son, Ramsey at Duke. Um, so I, I I think, I can't say I know for sure, but that I think certainly they spent, I know from talking to Nick, they spent a lot of time talking tennis. So I think, I, I'm, I'm guessing that that was his introduction to uh, to what we do. You know, he's in Charleston, so we should connect with him. Actually, uh, Alex Vukovic, former student, former summer staffer, he played at Princeton, and he teaches a in Charleston, South Carolina. He teaches a free clinic every Saturday morning, and um, you know, he definitely has a very um, solid understanding of what we do. I remember that name. Yeah, he was on a podcast. He he's in love with the game. A takeaway for me with Andy, 
and I mean, I've known him 20, 25 years. You know, just how somebody says something is you don't want to get any bad reps. You know, and then coming back to change, you know, all the, he asked the question about myelin, which I thought was excellent as well. And it all ties together with people ask me about their, the changes we recommend in their, for their game. And I have the wise guy answer. People heard it before is like, how long is it going to take me to change my game? And I say a little less than the ice age, because if you're thinking about how long it's going to take, you're not thinking about making the change itself. True. But I, I did like the eight weeks because it kind of gives someone a, an idea of time frame. And when you went back to, when you were talking earlier about the player coach dynamic, you know, I think a coach has, I'm sorry, a parent coach dynamic. I think it's important for a, a coach to have a good plan as far as a good layout and and an understanding of how to execute a change or anything instead of just saying it'll happen. Uh, I, I like the, the eight weeks. I thought that that was a nice, you know, you can be off a week or two, something like that. But I mean, I think it's a good idea and it gives someone going into the, to the adventure of making a stroke change, knowing, look, it's going to be, potentially rough sledding here for eight weeks, but at least it's a timetable. So I thought that was. Yeah, no way. Before we went on air, you asked me about your player who's going to be playing the NCAA tournament this, this upcoming week, starting tomorrow about her serve and her grip. And I said, wouldn't it be great if she could hang out with you all summer? You know, if you're out there with younger players and just show up and, you know, take the summer. I, I like what you're drawing from that is uh, give them a, a set time period. So it's, so it's not like, well, we'll see, you know, with, uh, it's a tough sell. Yeah. But you know, the myelin, the, the substance of the brain produces through repetition, you know, we always tell people be a myelin farmer. I got that line from uh, Kevin Record, a high school coach. You know, that, you know, it's, it's like when Andy said, don't, you just don't want to have a bad rep. Another, another thing I heard Andy say that it's like, okay, I really like that. And I do. I think that's where you got to hang in there. We call them the golden nuggets. That you know somebody, and they've, you've heard them talk and talk about tennis. It, where you mentioned on the toss, you need to have a, a delayed toss. You know, you know the way Jesus said that. Instead of saying, "Well, what we'll say is you need to turn first, turn toss." But people right away, especially the trophy look, they just go straight up with their toss. But I thought that was very good. Um, I remember Virginia Wade saying, "I was at a clinic, Wimbledon champion, seventy-seven. That's a fact. That she uh, said, don't let go of the ball until shoulder level. When Andy was asked the height of the toss, you know, people just can't really say, okay, I agree with that. As Vic said, about 20 inches out of your outstretched hand. But actually the toss is going forward too. So if I take my two fingers and I go like this and they're the same length, and this one I tilt forward, representing the toss that's in front, it's lower in space. Uh, you mentioned Roscoe Tanner when he talked about the toss. Vic used to say about the toss, and it's good that we're doing this because I know people have asked us to circle back and talk about stroke production. Bradenism, when you toss high, you have more time to be crummy because you have more time for extra movements. That two-ounce ball falling, Andy mentioned in the podcast, uh, it does fall at a faster rate, so it's not in your window as long. Um, what about miss? What other miss came to come back to your memory from that podcast? From that podcast? Um no, nothing really, uh, you know, 
the one that, like I said, the one that I like the most is, and I just remember vividly, one of the first times I met Andy, I brought up uh, the six foot four Brazilian athlete that you liked, uh, Eric Brook. And Andy came from inside the house and was already, uh, just by watching him hit the ball, was already giving him the brain type. And I thought that was incredible when I watched that. Because with you seeing it, you know, I know you would ask a lot of questions. You kind of get involved in it back and forth. Yours was more like an interview process to get the answers that you were looking for. While Andy was just basically seeing someone hit the ball and immediately pegged him pretty much exactly like you did. I thought that was incredible. Well, I think Andy's skill set, um, he, he certainly will go through either gross motor skills, fine motor skills, and he'll explain um, which brain type you assign with someone who's um, gross or fine motor skilled. And, you know, speaking skills come into it, so many things. But his, his work, you know, especially in the last X amount of years, he's working with, you know, maybe one-on-one, a high-level player. And he goes straight to that where you're in the trenches with adaptive behavior in, in junior tennis. And, you know, you, know, you have, uh, say, how he's teased people, say, yeah, you got 20 kids coming at you and they all had too much sugar on their uh, sugar cereal. And then, so it's it's pretty easy to tell who the extroverts are. They're even more off the wall. But um, no, he does definitely use the brain typing more from uh, the, the motor programming, where I do it more with the personality. But you need you need to do both. It's a great tool. But that that was just insightful. You could just tell, which is great. And that's what we're trying to do is with young coaches like Jonathan Soki is just share information from the past. So it was he's obviously. Uh, I'm sure his tennis helped him get into Duke, but he's very articulate. You can just tell he's got very was, good, very good verbals. I've heard a bunch of his uh, recent podcasts as far. I heard the one with Kelly Jones. Uh, I heard the one with Lindsey Davenport. Um, yeah, the, the girl f- from Buffalo. You know, your brother Jay loves Buffalo. She's a great player. Jesse Pagula. Yeah, she's been on a few times. And so, actually, he, you know, you pick up these little things where um, he's older, but he was training in Boca, and he was a a guest in their house coming up. So you just, I mean, if, if, I'm pretty sure I heard this, but, uh, in one of those, but he basically reflects back to his time at, at Duke and basically says that he didn't realize that he wasn't, that he didn't know enough. So it's kind of interesting that, uh, be interesting to talk to him a little bit more in depth as far as the time that he was there with Nick White when he was a player. It seems like he's a lot more, you know, reflective and wishing that he would have made changes in his games as an adult versus when he was in, I mean, he's still, Duke's a great program, but I mean, it's uh, it's pretty interesting that he was able to be critical of himself and saying that he wished he knew then what he knows now. Duke, what a beautiful campus. I was in Raleigh and one of Dave Anderson's students who I'd met going out to Dallas, a student at Duke, class act and, um, he insisted that we come over to Duke and, and practice and have have a meal on campus. What, what a beautiful place. I got I got to throw in a Miami reference here. We have Virginia that won the national title yesterday, and Andres Pedroso from Miami is the coach. I think that's uh, back-to-back that they won. 
Well, I don't know if it's back to back. I should know, but they've won six out of the last thirteen years. I think something like that. Six it, out of eleven. I want to say it's back to back. I'm going to go out on a ledge here and say back to back. It might be his third. His his third. So, congrats to Andres. Uh, known him a long time since we were little kids. I'm a little older, but uh, he grew up in Miami as well. So phenomenal guy. And he was at Virginia. Then he left, and then he went back. Correct. So he played at Duke. And yeah, he was the assistant under Brian, Brian Boland. Boland. And then they won a bunch. Then he left for a while, was working privately, and then he came back. So didn't miss a didn't miss a beat there. Won national titles right away, basically. You know, Duke. Uh, I always wanted to go to Coach K. He has a carry. He used to have a. Maybe he's still doing it. You know, even just because he's retired doesn't mean he's not running. He used to run a, a camp for coaches. And it was always, it was always in the, the uh, in, and I think it was in September before the basketball season. I was on an airplane one time. Uh, this young gal was, um, she had two degrees from Duke, and she was going to um, an interview, and she was uh, Japanese, and she, I just started asking her about Duke basketball, Coach K, and she knew she was like encyclopedic. She was a. Cameron Crazy? She was, she was, yeah, Cameron Crazy. She was a major fan. And I said, you know, when you go to the interview, you know, I mean, I told her, I said, this, is it on your resume? I mean, she just put, like, other notables. Uh, Duke basketball fanatic. And I'm, I'm, I was dead serious. I said, you know, I've been in that business of training people to get jobs, resume tech. And, you know, that's definitely a conversation piece. With let's talk a little bit about college tennis. Uh, Ty Tucker, they had, they had beaten Virginia twice in dual matches, and it was uh, we mentioned it last week, 1957 and 2003. The only times on the men's side were Big Ten teams that won the NCAAs. Do you think that it's the heat and humidity is a big factor? I mean, I do know that uh, we are at the time of the year where the humidity is through the roof here down in with all the rain down in, in Orlando and entering the summer months here. I mean, that could be it. Um, no, one of the players that we're going to watch in the morning, um, he's going to Europe to play for six weeks. They said, you know, when you get back, it's going to be, when you get off the airplane, it's going to be like, you well, actually, when you get out of the airport, it used to be, you have to, you had to walk across the tarmac when you get off an airplane, but, but now that's not the case. Unless you're in certain countries, I get a kick out. I kind of laugh when you're in a certain country and the airplane lands and you, it's raining and you got to get your luggage and carry it on the inside, carry it into the airport. But we, we, so this young player coming back from Europe, he leaves the the airport and he's going to be like he walks into a sauna. I mean, it, it takes a while to climatize. Um, but I don't know about the big, t- the, you know, could be, but uh, could be a lot of reasons. I mean, I remember when I was in college, when we had guys that. You know, I won't say any names. Uh, that basically just tanked because they were ready to go home. They just really could not wait to get, uh, you know, and the, and the prospect of winning, especially as they eliminated the wild card into the U.S. Open for foreigners. You know, a lot of these guys were like, "Yeah, I don't think I'm that's, out. I think that's right. I think for whoever wins the the N- the NCAA tournament, singles and doubles, doesn't matter where they're from, they should get the wild card." I think they, they should, think they should the, change that. But uh, then they, I think they only made it for Americans. I remember one year not too long ago, um, 
Wake Forest, how they, I think it was a year after they had won the team tournament, their best players weren't playing the individual tournament. The team tournament was over and, and they left, which, which is unfortunate. I understand that it's, it's in the cards for uh, the, the individual tournament to be in the fall. With, uh, have you, what, did you watch? I know you're going up there tomorrow to, I watched in the, the afternoon. I watched the women's final. I did not get a chance to watch the men's final. They didn't, I didn't get to see it on TV. So, um, I missed it, but, um, saw the result. Yeah. I asked, I, I watched the women's final. I've communicated some with Dave Secker. He's been a guest on our podcast. Uh, I'll ask him to come on and, um, my, one of my text messages was to him. I said, uh, I'm sure you're tired hearing people say great run. Yeah. yeah semis, finals, it can't be fun. I mean, it must be. Well, actually, uh, Colette Lewis, uh, those of you that love junior tennis, she, she and her husband do a great job. It's, it's a blog. Just go to zoo tennis and you can read all about junior, junior tennis players, college tennis players. She wrote a great article. Um, it, it just, it's just well-written. You know, it's so well-written. It's like, well, okay, if you didn't see the match, you'd get a really good feel by reading the article. It made you feel like you were there. Um, what are your comments from the women's final you watch? Well, actually, now, before I talk about that one, I did, I did going back to what we were talking about earlier about myself coaching these guys when they were quite young, uh, I got a kick out of watching, I don't know where I saw it yesterday, but uh, Robert Gomez another coach down in Miami, he had coached Andres Pedroso since he was, I want to say 10 or 11 years old. So, and he was up there watching. That, that was pretty cool too to see, to see Robert there uh, supporting his old student uh, winning a title. So, Oh, it's fun, the history, the connections. Uh, I know. Uh, and you were talking here about, you know, Wake Forest and I'm sure Grant's brother Morgan was on that team. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy the connections that you can come up with here with, if you talk long enough about about tennis, well, it was your advice. You told me to try to uh, reinforce the, the eight pillars, and we had Manny Diaz on to talk about Welby, and you know Stuart Welby's son called me up for Manny's phone number because he went up to watch Georgia was playing Ohio State. With and here, the, and I'll go in another direction. I, I want to say that the rule change when it was for had to be for Americans. Happened when Manny's uh, player, Matias Boker, another guy from Miami, who I've known since he was, geez, we used to train at the same place together when I was 15. So he must have been like 10. But um, Matias was playing for Argentina. Uh, I want to say the first year that he won it, they made him change to a U.S. citizen to be able to get the wild card. And then he won it again the following year. So. All roads here, Steve. We can just keep going back and forth. Yeah, yeah, circles. yeah. I remember Matias. Yeah, he won it twice, and uh, I don't remember who won the match, but I remember it was like in the 30s, which is very cold for Florida. If it's in the 30s, generally the wind's blowing as well. I mean, you know, I went to watch him at the Open. Uh, I want to say, uh, yeah, I'm going to get this wrong. I want to say it was, I want to say he played Enkfist, but I could be wrong. I want to say it was a Swedish guy. Let's go with that. But with so many, so many young tennis players homeschooling, and we were running a, we ran a tennis school in Tampa for 15 years. And if we had one, we had 25 juniors that drove from Tampa to Orlando to watch Raven play against Matias. 
But his his career was cut short through injury, right? Yeah, he was never really able to seemingly have like a long, a long stretch where he was healthy. So what a beautiful game! I saw him about a year and a half ago. We had a mini reunion here in in Delray, and he came out with his brother, and they're still hitting as well as ever. You know, a young boy who I I met, um, I would would never say I coached him. I mean, I was on the court with him for a week in Switzerland. Uh, his brother plays at Harvard, but he's on the team, Jeffrey von Schnellenberger. I have to get it, get it correct. I always think of a hockey player who had a very similar name. But, the, but, but, but he was a football coach who had a similar name. Who's that? Howard Schnellenberger. Yeah, there you go. I said it wrong. Oh, they, okay. that, that, that's the gentleman. Uh, say it again, Howard Schnellenberger. He's the one. Get off on a tangent. Digress. Next time I have bacon and eggs for breakfast. Yeah. Next time you have bacon and eggs for breakfast, remember the chicken was vowed, but the pig was committed. But so he he won quite easily at three, playing for Virginia. Um, I was asked not too long ago, you you say, oh, he has the it thing. That that kid, he just had the it thing. He was relaxed. And, and, um, you know, win or lose, they have great competitive skills if they're up or down. You know, it's like they're not they're not an emotional roller coaster. People have the thing. It's kind of like coming back to ice hockey. Um, one of my brothers, he he didn't panic when he got the puck. You know, and that's that's where it happens to so many people. They get right around the net and they just jam the puck and they just don't wait a millisecond, two milliseconds, three milliseconds, four milliseconds. Just just wait a second or two to do a, one more move, one more move to get the. Get the, we got a get dedicated the podcast here for you to talk solely about hockey. Oh, we could. We had the uh, supposed Rocky episode that you uh, forgot your notes for, but uh, yeah, I mean, with uh, with ice hockey, um, I mean, I don't watch it during the year because it's, you could watch it every night. I just watch it during the playoffs. But really, with tennis kids, they could watch it for from a character standpoint. But um, Yvonne said it sounds just like tennis. Um, Yvonne produces the, the website or the podcast. You know, they make it simple. Do your assignment. Um, you know, you hear that word "deep" all the time. Get it in deep. Um, you know, and it's just and, you know the competitive spirit, and you know, it's, it's really we're winning all the battles. You know, so it, it's I, I, I do think if you understand one sport, you understand the next. Anything else on the t- the the, um, the women's match? All right, so I haven't spoken about the women's match. Yeah. I was so eager to see the NC State girl or ladies um, play doubles. I was expecting them to be all over the net and a little bit. I don't, I don't know if the nerves got the best of them or, or what, but um, I was surprised that they lost that doubles point, to, you know, to start the day. And then, you know, obviously they've got a great player at number one, but... Well, I, I, in, NC State had beaten UNC um, in the conference final, ACC final. Good friend of mine's an alum from there, uh, Brian Rosenthal. I was, I was hoping that they'd come through for uh, for Brian. I know he's a big fan. You you went to NC State. He played at NC State, and it was in my mind they were talking about the Carolina girls were talking about winning it for Jordan. So yeah, twenty twenty three. I saw that. I was thinking about winning it for Rosenthal. That's. Uh, what I wanted. 
there's, uh, there's so much drama with the college tennis match. Um, Cracked Rackets, if you listen to their podcast. Yeah. Um, well, more, I, 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 I kind of follow them on somewhere. I, I see most of their posts. I don't know if I follow their podcast. Yeah, so you watch a match with Cracked Rackets versus watching a match with ESPN. For example, I would be critical, say ESP, ESPN stayed on the first match too long. And Cracked Rackets. Channel. Tennis Channel. Was okay. it on ESPN? Actually, now you say that. Um, yeah, I, I saw the women's on, on the Tennis Channel. Yeah. I don't know if the men were on an ESPN 3 or something. I, yeah. I, I missed that one. I think I saw this the other day at ESPN on ABC. It might have been ESPN, ESPN on Tennis Channel. I'm not, but anyway, the cracked rackets just jumped all over the place. You know, go to six, go to four. I mean, they've go got to, a tremendous go to passion for, I think it's on their Instagram page where they... I think recently started something out where they send out people send in videos of the best points of the week and you know they're doing a great job trying to promote college tennis and i know i send text to all the kids that i coach currently saying that to me that's a great environment it's it's an awesome environment you see all the other athletes from the other sports that come in to cheer on their friends it's that's a great you know i remember was it wayne bryan they used to always say that if you want to get kids into playing tennis take them to a college tennis match. And I kind of feel like the NCAA tournament is, is an NCAA match on, you know, on steroids, basically. It was, it's that much better. You know, the University of Illinois has uh, the name of their facility is Atkins Tennis Center. And I was put on the, the, the committee while it was being built. And, you know, I just told the coaches, actually, it, when, when it was being built, it was just, it was the coach, uh, Jennifer Roberts, spent so much time with she became the women's coach and it was later where craig tyler became the men's coach but with all having all six courts in a row what they were going to do is build uh maybe it's changed but like say the university of utah it's three and three and a lot of people a lot of college facilities are like that and you know in some ways it's generally based on land how are we going to build this and um for me my Point of emphasis: Why why you'd want six in rows is much better to run practice. You see all six courts, but for the spectators, and that's what crack rackets. When you're you know, when you're like say at Lake Nona or at these major campuses, it's and the coaches talk about how the scoreboard now, the jumbo scoreboard that they have at you know the major college campuses, you know you can be on court four and you know how everybody else is doing, and. Uh, you know, that's where you'll see a coach, you know, have a player perhaps take an injury timeout, so they, the momentum will, will, will change. And, and that's what they really covered with cracked rackets. It's like, oh, the match, this is happening now, and this could happen now. And, it's, you know, it's, it was very, very well done. And I played at, uh, at FIU, and basically we used to play on the, on the six courts that went straight up and down, and the women always played on the three courts on the two banks of three. And I went the other day, actually, for the first time in ages to catch a, a women's match. I saw the the FIU women playing against uh, Maryland. And Julie Berg, who's now, like, I guess second in command at the athletic department, she, back in the day, she was one of the top trainers for me. She was phenomenal. When I saw her, we reconnected as if it were yesterday. And... She told me that they're re- redoing the six courts that come in a straight line. So it's, I agree with you. I think it's a way better environment to watch a tennis match than having the two banks of three. But 
Yeah. You could be the exception. With the doubles, um, you know, Dave Sacker told me that North Carolina, they, they started tagging some balls up the line instead of going to the middle. But also, too, it's um, a little bit of stage fright. I, I actually thought that UNC had won the title many times, but that was the first time they won it. But I guess they had won seven indoor, right? Because they've been, like Ohio State has been on top for so long. They've been in the top five forever. Um, you know, hats off to Ty Tucker and his coaching staff. But same thing with uh, UNC. They've been on top, but I, I didn't realize that they had won. It was great to see uh, Tyler Thompson. Uh, Tyler Thompson, I believe I got that right. The assistant coach. He uh, used to be the William and Mary coach when he recruited one of my girls way back. Uh, yeah, they were together a decade ago. So yeah, he's a, great for him. I mean, he's the, 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 the current head coach and Brian, 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 Calvis, Brian, but, uh, Calvis, Calvis. Yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting from a recruiting standpoint. I remember he recruited uh, a player I coached, and it was just very refreshing. I just remember Brian telling me. We only have one spot, and she's number three on our list. Usually, usually you don't hear that. It was just like, like okay, you just, remember, just just knew where you stand. It's kind of like with the eight weeks. Give it eight weeks. You make a change. I remember Tyler recruiting Olivia, and just came out of nowhere. It was a complete surprise when he came out and recruited her, and it was he's a great guy. I remember that. Jeez, ten years ago, just doing a lot of math tonight, Steve. Going back and in reflective thought over here. Uh, for me, for you know, I've trained a lot of coaches. You know, there's ups and downs with every job, but I think with college coaching, you know, we always tease and say, well, um, you get foreign players, so the parents are only there one weekend out of every, four years. That's not really nice for the parents, but that's a, that's a coach's joke. But with, uh, yeah, your season comes to an end. Like junior tennis just keeps on going, but it's like, okay, all right, this is the finale. Can we get to the get to the national tournaments. Can we do well in the national tournament, win the national tournament? Then it's like, okay, we've got to regroup next year. But with junior tennis, does it go that way? It's like just again, 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 no closure. I can't fathom how these uh, North Carolina girls are going to go out there and play. Now they're going to play the individual and the, and the doubles. It seems like uh, zero time to celebrate their, their national title. Well, I, and most coaches will tell you that their players are drained. You know, it takes so much focus to go through the team tournament. Uh, so many comments for me. One in that match is the, the the gal who closed it out. I like you know now I'm just like the kids where I've got a I have a telephone and I'm obviously my telephone skills are pretty slow, but it, I mean I've got my telephone right next to me and I've got my computer on my lap and you can read their bios. And the the gal from UNC who closed out, I mean, she was. Uh, nominated for being an all-state high school basketball player. I saw that. I actually saw that same thing. I saw that she was a And then also, player. too, is that, uh, I mean, I don't know Brian, but I've talked to him on the phone and been introduced to him, is that, you know, he's my size, and, and this girl's, they're both being interviewed at the same time, and she's like two inches taller. I was amazed how well she spoke. She Yeah, that was great. It's, uh, I, can't, I can't imagine of being uh, 18, 19, 20 years old and uh, being that calm, cool, and collected and... Well, I think that's I think that's one positive of uh, climbing the ladder in tennis is uh, you can develop very good speaking skills. I mean, the more you're interviewed, it's like Jimmy Connors won 109 tournaments. He was pretty good in the interview. You know, I think uh, 
Del Potro was uh, very first one to say, he goes, okay, this is what I, he'd win a tournament and go, oh, you know, because he just, of course, he's in, he wasn't speaking his native tongue as well, but um, yeah, and you can, you know, the players get better at it, you know, as far as, and I, you know, it's not really just a, the trophy presentation, they pretty much all say the same thing, but when you hear them start to be interviewed. Um, I watched the men's three, division three final, and between, between who? It was between Tufts and Case Western. And Case Western, uh, uh, their coach, um, they're out of Cleveland, and the, the coach was with, uh, he was with Ty Tucker at one point. Should have his name, Todd. It's a Polish name. But they won, and um, then the gentleman who was playing won for Tufts, he ended up winning the singles. He's already won, he won the national individual title. And if if he could have pushed it to three, now Nick White had been the coach, the assistant coach at Tufts, so I just got some inside scoop on that. Said that you know he was very very fit. If he could have won that, won the second set, and that's that's what we're talking about with cracked rackets. Is that okay? If he could turn the corner, if he could win this set, it would just keep the match going. And there is always a chance in college tennis for the dramatic comeback. Because in every every level of tennis, there is no time clock. Well, I saw that actually with the NC State women. Um, uh, the girl at number two, um, she was down. I want to say four match points in the second set, and I said ace, ace, backhand winner down the line. Got it back to a tiebreaker. And to get it to the tiebreaker, I think she must have saved like six match points. Just that I was thinking alone. If this, you know, NC State's able to win this one. Yeah, the, 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 the girl named Smith. The, right, correct. Down Love 5. and Oh, was she down Love 5? I missed that part. Yeah, and, and uh, climbed back. And yeah, to just keep it going. So, uh, you know, you're only playing to to four. And all of a sudden you look at the board and it's, you know, it's, and it was a big, it's always a big thing who wins that doubles point. You know, as far as momentum, and it's like, well, okay. Now there's six singles matches to play. And we only have to win three. They've got to win four. I, I watched the Division Three women's, and we're going to uh, talk to Dave Schwartz. Uh, you know, Dave is from Ithaca, New York, played at Cornell, and he's won a bunch of uh, national championships. I say a bunch. Uh, you know, maybe he's not a handful yet, but I'm going to guess it's four or five. He was at Middlebury. He's one on the men's side and the women's side. And the, uh, yeah, so it'll be fun to talk to him. He's the current coach at Middlebury? No, um, the uh, Claremont McKenna. You know, just to go from Vermont to California, that's, a, that's, that's interesting. But yeah, the story behind winning and what goes behind it. I, I think one thing, you know, Wayne Bryan's always telling parents, Get your kids to go watch college tennis matches. Yeah, he's the one that, hundred percent. And I, I do think a lot of juniors they say I want to play college tennis and they've never seen a college tennis match. Take, Way take, better take, than take. going to to a professional tournament, in my opinion. Why do you say that? Uh, if you're a kid, depending on the age, like you can yell, you can scream, you can kind of get involved in it. You, you know, it's easy access to the players. You know, I think it's, you know, depending on the age. I, I, I texted one of my friends. 
And he said that his daughter is a little too young right now, but, uh, you know, it's I'm a person. I think it's way more fun to get involved in a college tennis match. You can get, you know, you see that the players themselves are screaming, cheering. Uh, it's just a lot more of an electric atmosphere versus having to sit there quiet, please. And, Stay in your seats, and so I don't know. I just think it's a better atmosphere for someone getting started off in tennis. You know, I've been asked why do I always reference where I learned something. I think if you do that, you have a better chance to remember and make a story. But Jim Rogers, Winnipeg boy, he's the one who I first heard say, "College tennis is a goal; pro tennis is the dream," and. I mean, that's just so well put with... Uh, Are you taking notes on this for your book or... No, no, I just chicken scratch. But, oh. but, but one thing about credit is I went to his boarding school and one of the, you know, there was lots of kids who were breaking lots of rules. I was one of them, but I, there was some serious rules that the other kids were breaking. But one thing was it was just plagiarism. If this prep school I went to is that it was like the, the biggest thing is that if you were caught plagiarizing, I mean, you could be booted out of the school. And I just think of all the plagiarism that's rampant through uh, the internet on tennis teaching, you know, where no one's really giving credit where credit's due. And it's just, it's just you unfortunate. Ask, you can ask chat GPT to write your book for you and you can just plagiarize it from there. So you be full circle with, um, Let's do this. Uh, Coco Goff, you sent me some things to look, read, and you sent me that Coco Goff is going to be coached by Rick Macy, Serena Williams. Is that rumor or is that fact? That's, uh, I'm not sure if it's a fact, but uh, I want to say it's a rumor. But uh, I guess I saw it in an article, so maybe it's a little bit more than a rumor. But basically... I read the article, so I, I agree. Okay, so... Yellow journalism. But basically, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, like, uh, you know, Rick's been dying to get back in the in the spotlight, I guess, with uh, after the movie. So let's see if he's. Uh, well, uh, it seems like a it seems like a tough change. I mean, he makes it seem like it's going to be a relatively uh, quick minor adjustment, and that it can be done in an off season. I think it's you know I think we mentioned this before in a previous podcast. I'm shocked that more players didn't use the COVID break to make some serious changes in their games. I mean, yeah, no, I heard, I don't, uh, I don't know if the off season is going to be enough for her to make that adjustment with her. I heard curious being interviewed and a, a, a gal asked him was great question. Well, when you're going to come back behind that great serve, you're going to be serving volume because he said he's working on his game and you know, that, that's just that's a great question. But from where we're sitting, if, you know, if there wasn't a wall right there and you could hit golf balls, this is from all my days as a caddy. I've never really played golf. But three or four shots that way, there's a uh, facility, a gentleman from Egypt. He was top 10 in the world in squash. He has five squash courts. He had one huge tennis court and, and uh, a padel court. And now he, um, he, he, had, he took the tennis court out. He has more squash courts and more padel courts. But Brandon Flanagan, who you know, and he's helped us with a podcast, he took me over to meet the gentleman who has indoor, had the indoor tennis court because possibly he would use it for filming. And when we were there, he has a gym, and Coco Goff was there. And I remember Andy, you know, you know, we were just 
uh, waiting around and talking to the gentleman and you know, like everybody like mentioned her her forehand but at the time her little brother was on the court and it wasn't a lesson but he was just playing and you know the one thing about the curriculum pathway that we put together it, it's it's ideal to say okay the sooner the better for a little you know we we need to help beginners this is how beginners should start so when you talk about kogo golf making a change and everybody's just openly i mean everybody televised matches podcasts talking about her forehand and making a change but just going back to that afternoon and you know i said well really you know, the horse is out of the barn coco's she's up and running and she's you know at that time it wasn't the case but she's been one in the world in doubles top 10 in singles it's just like college coaches when they inherit or they recruit they start with an 18 year old it's a little bit different than if you're with an eight-year-old. But go ahead. What do you think gonna, about? This is going to put the uh, eight-week theory to test here. She can, uh, she can make the change. But, uh, well, I think it's all, you know, the trust factor. Um, I think Serena would be certainly more of an inspiration. More, as if she would be labeled a celebrity coach, and I think the celebrity coach is a confidant or a mentor. I think Joe Public thinks many times, well, Serena's going to get in and talk about forehands and backhands. You know, you and I were just watching back to ice hockey is that's what, our, you know, for our listeners, there's teaching and there's coaching. We're watching the best hockey players in the world. They're not talking about how they skate. You know, it's really all the tactics and the competitiveness. And that's just something that um, when you, we do talk about pro players, well, to speculate, if they could go backwards, you know, no, they don't need to change their forehand, but, you know, what, what's the calculation? Uh, what would be more efficient? Um, and then really in the end, you know, that's one thing with uh, uh, Jonathan Stokey's um, interview with Andy. You know, Andy used a Welby Van Horn line. Uh, Vic used to say that you can't violate physical laws where Welby said you, you have to improvise within a fundamental range of correctness. You know, racketed awareness, the strings have to be facing a certain way. But um, I didn't hear Serena Williams being involved in that. Did you, did you read that separately? Or? Well, it wasn't part of the article, but then I was told that she was going to be part of it as well. She's not. Um, Coco Goff is managed by Team 8. And, you know, Patrick Mortagolo is um, obviously supporting, and she, he's been supporting her since she was 10 financially and then with that you see her with you know right here four golf shots that way you know you she'll be in that gym and there's two trainers from mortagola working with her um but she she hasn't necessarily had mortagola tennis coaches and um yeah i mean i i really think it's like the lawnmower i think i could take a lawnmower apart but that doesn't mean i could put the lawnmower back together and um most you know, people have not really done that technical work, but it was in the article. It was John McEnroe said that no one could analyze strokes better than Rick Macy, correct? Was it, was John it John McEnroe? I think John, it might have been Patrick McEnroe. It might have been... Patrick? Yeah. Um, you know, so. It'll be interesting. I mean, it'll be, I, mean I kind of question the, you know, are they going to really put in four or five-hour days, you know, during an off-season to kind of... I know Rick's a workhorse, and he's out there all hours of the day, but 
I was at his place. I'd been there so many times. It was in a chapter in my life now. And then uh, we counted. There's 341 signs. Or his name's up 341 times on signs. And I was there very early. And um, someone was wiping the signs. Just a towel, someone has a towel. I go, oh, okay. It was Rick Macy. Now, he's a worker. Um, no, no doubt about it. Very passionate. With, But I, I think you said the eight weeks... Um, she has a lot of money and she has a lot of time and you know could someone convince her someone in her inner circle you know we talked about on this podcast where Jack Kramer said that Sabatini should, she should take a year off and work with a junior coach with um, you know it's very interesting to talk about people who have made changes and it's, the examples are, there's not that many of them, but you can go back with, you know, Don Budge. He had a Western grip on the forehand, changed it to an Eastern. 38, he wins the Grand Slam. You go back even before that with Bill Tilden, he didn't have a backhand grip. And his father was mayor of Philadelphia. And back then, you know, people didn't really have a coach, but they were wealthy enough to have someone feed him balls, and he changed his backhand. Um, can you, off the top of your head, can you name pros that made changes in their game? I mean, I know there's lots of players that have made changes with their stance on the serve and making, but I don't know if it's really a true change as much as just a cosmetic change, you know, where you, you know, like where Monfils basically his whole career with his feet together in a platform stance. And then there was a, a year or so that he was going and going pinpoint. So help me out. What, what's that Silich's uh, first name? Marin. Marin Silich. So he it, made a change. He made he changed his toss. He's working with even Nisevich, and you got to guess that Goran said, "Hey, toss like me." And he tossed low and, and out to the right. Novak service got a lot better while he was with Novak. With with, uh, and with Goran. But with uh, Goran, his Federer said. Uh, he asked him a question about Seelich's game. He said, before or after he changed his serve. So they're, they're in the know. But yeah, I mean, uh, Nadal lost seven times in a row to uh, Djokovic. Nadal lost seven times in a row to Djokovic. He said, what's the difference? He goes, he used to play three meters behind the baseline, and now he's playing one. But yeah, he used to have the racket go like this on the forehand side, and he tinkered with his serve. Yeah, his serve, I think, is... Uh, Sneaky good. I mean, he's not blowing people away, but he's hitting targets and he's consistent. I mean, if precise. you look at the before and after from when he was with um, Todd Martin, Todd Martin. I mean, it's night and day. And you're kind of seeing something similar, but nowhere near as drastic with uh, Yannick Sinner now. You know, obviously, you know, we talk about Welby Van Horn. Todd uh, Welby used to say here would be a person to copy. He was very, very well taught. But when someone comes off the tour, I, I remember like right away he went right to the front of the line, and you know I was at a USPTA national convention, and you know he's a headliner. I mean he was what four or five in the world and class act, and I certainly could promote the college game because he played at Northwestern. But um, yeah, I think that uh, you know it's like with Lendl, Tony Tony Roach said you're you're, you're too greedy. And you're too cocky. Your ego's too big. And you, you've already got a wheelbarrow full of money. And, you know, you skip the French to prepare for Wimbledon. 
And Tony Roach said, you just should serve and volley on every surface. You've won everything. You want to win Wimbledon. You can't start the month before in the grass court tune-ups. You know, just change your game even on clay. That's the one part when it comes to Coco that I'm a little surprised with. with the amount of doubles she plays, the, as good as her serve is, you know, how she hasn't, let's say, taken potentially some of the pressure off her, off her forehand on her service games by coming in off her serve, just to give someone a different uh, target or a different visual versus her just standing there in the same spot. I mean, that seems like a, something that should have, that could have been addressed or, or attempted um, versus now, you know, however many years later that she's been on tour. You know, I think she won the French Open when she was like 12 or 13, junior French Open. So is she 19 now? Or, I mean, you know, it's six years on tour or four or five years on tour, I guess. You know, to now make that decision that uh, to make that change, it just seems... Well, that's that's the whole point is that we're, for our listeners, it's not about Coco Golf. I mean, she's, I mean, she's superstar. And I mean, she's, but if you could turn the clock back, like that afternoon, watching her little brother play, and say, "Hey, you know, we don't really have a speaking part here, but this this would be a better pathway." I saw her coming third at the Junior Orange Bowl in the twelves. I want to say she was nine at Tropical Park. I mean, just all the intangibles in the world. I think I've mentioned here before how lovely a person her grandmother is. I mean, just so you, you and your brother run the tournament. Yeah. Well, no, we weren't running the tournament. We were hosting it. Hosting. So basically, um, but you know, it's definitely someone you want to see do well because I think she do great things for tennis. Oh, class, but, class uh, act. Uh, but I mean, I mean, it just seems like an ambitious. If you dig, if you dig deep on YouTube, you can watch her workout. Doing like she's nine years old and she's going through physical workouts. I mean, she was just trained like a champion from a very, very young age. Um, I, I remember you being with us. I mean, actually, we were staying at your parents' place in Miami, and Victor Lilov won the won the uh, twelve and under Orange Bowl. I mean, you were there when we talked to him during the changeover in the finals. Coco Goff that year, I could have it backwards, but she um, she played eighteens in one and twelves in the other. I think that she played uh, um, the 18s in the Orange Bowl. But anyway, I, I can remember being with Matt Clore. He was with the USGA and at the Eddie Herr. And I was with, you know, the private sector. I was with players at the Eddie Herr. And he was, hey, let's go watch Coco Goff. And we both were saying, and, and so I, can't, I think that she was, uh, yeah, it was, it was for sure. It was the Eddie Herr where she played the 18s. And we're just talking to ourselves. Could you imagine if someone was really helping her from a technical standpoint? Because it was missing you know, way back then. Coming back to Jonathan Stokey, Mylan, she's playing, she's hanging on that racket the same way that she did when you saw her when she was nine. And um, that's where um, our, our sport, for the most part, people don't understand basics. It's funny now that we were talking about uh, Todd Martin. It reminded me: was Todd Martin coaching Marty Fish when Marty Fish changed his forehand and was going, uh, taking it straight down on the backswing? Uh, I want to say that was in Australia one year. I don't know if you don't remember that one, but uh, Marty Fish, the 
Um, you've heard the term barroom athlete, you know, so you know, he's going to win at billiards and shuffleboard, golf. The, the golf. He's a very, very good athlete. Like he played, he was in the starting five when Roddick and uh, Fish played, I think it was uh, Boca Prep playing basketball for fitness and fun. Um, Marty, you know, he, he got in shape and then he, he cracked the top 10. He was, he was most of, most of his career. He, he, I remember Edgenberry saying that, uh, one time Edgenberry just, Pat Edgenberry, the, the famous physical trainer who spent time with, started with Agassi. He had an internship. He's from Chile. Fact checker. Went to yep. Kentucky through the javelin. And he ends up down at IMG, and then he worked with these famous players. It was uh, Sampras was there a little bit, but Agassi and Courier were there every day. Um, with yeah, the sooner the better in every aspect of the game. Even like say, um, tactically, with it's really sad to have someone say that Max Cressy is the only person in men's tennis who serves in volleys. I mean, like that's just. Uh, coming back to ice hockey, in ice hockey, that sport has changed. When I was a kid, it was first coming in where hockey players were working with figure skaters. The best teachers I ever had. Really, the, in a lot of ways, the only teachers of technique. Um, you know, hockey's kind of, you know, that's what the, the Russians said. We'd like to thank the Canadians for inventing hockey so we could develop it. But you have to be taught skills. You have to be, it, it has to start from the get-go. And, you know, in hockey, if you can't skate, you can't play. But in tennis, you can hit the ball any way you want. And the scary part is you're playing, you're being judged um, not on a time clock, not on a measuring tape, but you're being measured on who's the kid on the other side of the net. And you have to go way, way up the ladder. You have to be in the game for years before you, you know, you're going to run into someone who also has very good skills or just they have very good skills. I want to go back to the Marty Fish. I want... Netflix to come out. I want them to come out and do a documentary on Vero Beach tennis. Okay, because back in the day, Marty Fish must have had the greatest improvement from the age of 14, 15 to 15, 16 of anybody I've ever seen in my life. So uh, I'm sure there's people out there that know the exact number, but uh, from Vero Beach, I know his dad was a Teaching pro. Teaching pro. But then furthermore, in Vero Beach, you had Robert Kowalczyk, who won clay courts back-to-back years. I think that's never been done. So I want to know what was in the in the water there in uh, Vero Beach. And uh, what was that? They were, they were a little younger than me. So in the late 90s, I want to know what was going on in the late 90s in Vero Beach tennis. That is a winning documentary. So whoever comes up with it, well, it's, I thank it, me later. I think it, I, w- I would guess that Tom Fish probably was teaching more. I'm going to guess he was more at a public park, came down from Minnesota, and then perhaps he went on to a more prestigious club. He, he probably was working with a group of juniors. Someone was. Um, it was Ryder DeHart's cousin. Ryder's a kid that he started with one of my students, Tom Olshted. And before he, uh, he had won the 12 and unders and I was just a long distance video coach and he was going to change to a one-hander and he was sent to me, but then I relocated to Tampa. So I coached him for many, many years, you know, like sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. 
And then he went to college. He played for one of our students, Craig Tiley. So his cousin is from uh, Vero Beach. And I make a video. And I told the mom, I said, just take it to a teaching pro and, and get another opinion. And they took it to Tom Fish. And Tom Fish called me up. And it was a, for me, it was a fun conversation. And he said, I agree with everything that's on that tape. Yeah, I always remember seeing him at junior tournaments. Classy guy. I always liked him. With, uh, but no, Marty did uh, struggle on the forehand, but he was very good overall. Serving so backhand, we're out of this world. And he's a guy who can mix it up. I remember one time, there must have been 5,000 people in a, at the, the, the stadium in Tampa where the Lightning play, and he was playing Sampras, and it was competitive. Usually Exos are more, they're not really hitting giggle, but it's an Exo exhibition and uh he said afterwards he goes i've played him you know in practice and on the tour and exhibitions and and sampras had, had already been re- he just recently retired and sampras you know it was just a one set um with uh but coming back to pat edgeberry you know he threw marty under the bus and and i do think in that documentary on marty on the uh, mental depression they threw Jim Lair under the bus so that happens but with um, Marty um, and his dad with the tape and his skill set that I'm throwing him under the bus where if he got super fit he would have had a much better career it, but Edge, what Edgenberry said is that he uh, talked about working with Al Order, who uh, said, hey, coach, uh, I talked to you about tomorrow, and it was New Year's Eve. He goes, okay, he's not going to practice on New Year's Day. He goes, instead of seeing you at uh, at, at, six, at 5.30, can I come in 30 minutes late tomorrow? And, but he said with Marty, he goes, Marty's going to celebrate his birthday for a week. You know, you know, family, friends coming in. And, you know, you just hear things, you know, with, uh, that's one thing about some of these guys who don't go to college. The guys who go to college, they, they party for a while. And so then they, they go through that experience. And uh, there are stories where the, the touring pros hit college campuses because uh, they, they missed out on that. They missed out on that fun. But coming back to change, Paul McNamee, you know, that would be somebody, if I think, for Coco Goff and people in her corner to talk to. He totally revamped his game. And he took a serious amount of time. He did it through training at Harry Hopman's. But, you know, he went from a one-handed backhand to a two-handed backhand, and he changed, changed grips and changed playing style and, um, and went back and was, was more successful. Um, but, you know, like say a, um, Jennifer Capriati was away from the game from injury and such, and... It's like you said with COVID, do they actually work on things? Do they come back and make, have they taken some time? Uh, years ago, there weren't exhibitions. You go way, way back. An American used to take 22 days to get to Australia by boat. And people would sit around and talk about tennis. And um, I, don't, I don't think that's part of our culture, um, even in junior tennis, um, making changes in your game. I went to Spain in about uh, was it 2002, 2003 uh, to the Sanchez Casal Academy, and then Pato Alvarez was there as one of the coaches. Um, 
The thing that struck me the most about that trip was seeing how everybody would sit down for lunch at a big round table and talk tennis. You know, and basically, you know, it was, it was, you know, I can speak from experience down here. You know, most of these kids want to disconnect from tennis at a certain point. You know, they've got too much or whatever, but there it was literally they played three hours in the morning maybe did a little fitness and then they went to to lunch and lunch was not lunch was a continuation of almost of the morning session now it might not have been a hundred percent a review of the you know it might have been watching a match on tv and talking tactic you know, and that's one big thing that i think that you know so many kids homeschooling nowadays but I, I, I just question the amount of quality time that's being put in. It's almost five hours of doing, you know, the same thing over and over and over again. But uh, it's nothing, you know. And again, at, at Sanchez Casal at that time, you had a young Andy Murray that was there. Um, you know, that guy to this day still seems like a, a lover of information, which is basically always learning. So that, that was the thing that, you know, I know people – talk about the Spanish system and double rhythm and forehands and kick serves and that. But to me, the part that was most impressive was just how it was really a complete consumption of information. There were just basically, there was no, you know, dial it back or make it simple. It was just basically, they were completely analyzing a sport and seeing how things can get better. And that really stuck with me for a long time. And you know, as a coach, I think I feel like I try to be very detailed and very and look at all angles of everything. But at some point, you just have kids that just have had enough. You know, after an hour and a half, they're oh, my mom's here to pick me up or something, or they're ready to go. So it's tough. It's a tough one when you're talking about competing with the highest level players that are you know that are playing 30 hours a week, seemingly. Well, some comments from your comments. You mentioned TV, just TV. Uh, years ago, you know, even affluent people would just have one TV. And then there'd be three generations watching a ball game. There's so much learning that takes place. Now the kids are walking around and they have a TV in their pocket. With On our last podcast with Dave Anderson, um, what do we call it? Uh, rap, rip, and rant. Um, when you start talking about the USTA, the governing body of tennis, the people certainly that are currently with the, the USTA, I mean, I, I'm six months short of 50 months, uh, 50 months, I'm six months short of 50 years being in tennis, going way back as, as a, a volunteer coach. But there, you know, and I know Jose Garris, um, was he a six in the world from Spain? And, he, you know, he was the director of coaching and, I'm sure he's still a consultant to the USTA. But I think that's one thing is that to have that respect level where the people that are working with, that work with beginners, who work with advanced players, they're, they're working together. And it's not this individuality, well, I've got the secret sauce and this is what I do. With um, coming back to Coco Golf with change, it's like Pagula when she was playing Taylor Townsend the other day. She's 0 for 2 against Taylor. Taylor... Um, she may have the best tactics in all of women's tennis. And people go, oh, that was stupid. What did you just say? Well, she t- 
takes a short ball and she comes forward. And I think of uh, Djokovic losing to Sam Query. And it was like, as great as Djokovic is, he, he certainly has changed that. That was a few years ago. And he's improved in that area, and he's stated that he needs to improve that area. But if your your A game's not working, you got to go with your B game. You know, okay, that Bill Tilden never changed a winning game, but always changed a losing game. And you know that that in itself, it's like with um, the Swedes, Borg. It was in his favor that he lost to Panada. He played the French eight times, won it six, lost to Panada twice. But at the, the the second time he lost to him. He had to change his stance, change his toss, and he was injecting, he had Novocaine injected into his stomach. He changed his serve. And that was in, so 76, he wins Wimbledon. With Vlander, I think it was 82, he wins the French. And by 88, he had definitely changed his game. You know, he wasn't just staying back, not missing. You know, he could play one-handed, backhand approach. And he, he won, he didn't win Wimbledon, but he won Australia on grass. Um, but there, there are many examples of change. Like, say, Sam Query, I remember being in a meeting that Rob Krychek set up. And, you know, the meeting didn't go anywhere. Uh, Paul Rodert, who was a intern under Gideon Ariel, when I was an intern under Vic Braden, it was his, I would say at that time, the number two and number three person working for him. They were like, what are, what are we doing in the room? And... Um, I remember just saying, you don't want the Sam Queries of the future to volley the way Sam Query volleys right now. And that's not taking a shot at Sam Query. I mean, here's a guy who's, uh, you know, been a fantastic tennis player, but you just bring the science into it. You know, how, how could Query have hit a better backhand volley? And um, I just don't think that type of uh, intellect, I'm sorry to say that word, I mean, it's come across like a, insulting people, you know, like say a Roger Federer has been told that he just loves information. And I would say, well, you know, he didn't start using analytics to 2017. If that's, I've heard that from some accurate sources, but if, if he was privy to the, a mountain of information that Braden accumulated, I don't think that the TV commentators, I don't think that the, you know, and, and certainly that doesn't, that's not something that a player needs to hear during their playing career. But once they're done with their playing career, it's like, how can we improve our sport? And, you know, education has to be at the forefront. You know, it's funny that uh, we were watching the, well, after that podcast we had the, the other day, we were watching the Alcaraz Struff match. And, you know, on the clay court, you saw Struff come into the net. 50 times and you know, he, he had his chances in that match. And then, and you look at someone, let's say like curious, you were mentioning him about COVID and serving and volleying, you know, no one has had a, the solution here for uh, Medvedev in this post Australian open. And yet curious played him last year in, in Canada served and volleyed every single point. I mean, I watched the match, served the volley at every single point. And then at the U.S. Open, they played a few months later, or a few weeks later, and he played them completely differently. So it was interesting to see a guy like Kyrgios, who people do not give credit for as a intelligent tennis player, he basically went out, 
Sir Big came in and just dumped volley short, as he's prone to do. But with Medvedev standing as far back as he was, wasn't going to get it. Go back and they play at the U.S. Open. Medvedev moves up in his court position to be able to handle the potential volley a little bit better. Now, no, uh, Kyrgios is beating him with a forehand, with a big serve, with a big forehand. So, you know, it's it's interesting that the one guy that people talk about that doesn't practice, doesn't do this, is the one that's actually attempting to play around the, around every part of the court. So I'm eager to see him back now at Wimbledon. I hope he has another good run because uh, it's good for tennis. One thing, uh, is Coco Goff, I'd like to say one thing about Struff, is if you say it this way, she has an uneducated ready position. She has an uneducated grip within a ready position. And, you know, that's like, you know, slapping someone across the head. And, but, you know, it's not a matter about pointing fingers, but, you know, that when, um, when people enter the sport, you know, so um, people ask us about Victor Lillo because it was just during the time uh, when we were putting up content that, you know, his sister as well, who helped him out so much, that there's quite a bit of content on Victor Lillop. Um, and we have more content than, than, than that's up. Is I can remember, you know, that, you know, his comments about her when she was a younger player. And, you know, I can remember one time was a girl from Romania came and she was like 450 in the world. And that's it. That's how we teach. We teach kids to teach. And he's just a young kid. And, uh, you know, he's just sitting on a bench telling everybody what she's doing wrong. And he was correct. You know, okay, look at her grip on her backhand, look at her slice and, and look at all the calculation. And, but I think with looking at Coco Goff, I, I just loved the, the father said, uh, she'll run across um, broken glass barefoot to get a tennis ball. Well, did they hear that from Rick? Because I've heard Rick use that line a lot. They'll get along great together. With, uh, yeah, Rick, uh, pop the popcorn. Um, with, um, but there's a very strong way to say it. It's uneducated ready position, uneducated grip on the forehand side. But I always say in tennis, two plus two equals whatever you want it to be. And, but, um, Struff is 33. So Coco Goff, you think, okay, career wise, if she is say 20, you know, we don't know. I think she's close to, close to that. I, I would bet that she's still 19. But anyway, when Pagula was playing and she didn't have options, just like when, uh, Djokovic was playing Sam Query, it's like, okay, you know, you, you know, you got to get in. You know, you're, you're the baseline game on the grass, you know, whatever. It, it wasn't working out for him that day. And Pagula, and, and she's so solid. And her, her technique overall is very, very good. It's very basic, you know. It's, it's you, you, when you watch someone, uh, it's like, okay, that's a, a great base, a fundamentally sound forehand volley, backhand volley. She's just in what we say, in the ballpark. Um, but do they practice to make those changes? It really baffles me that top tennis players 
you know, what's your favorite tournament? What's your favorite tournament? Wimbledon, Wimbledon. What's your favorite court? Center court, Wimbledon, center court, Wimbledon. And they don't work on being able to play. I mean, the grass is different now, but they don't work on going forward on a year-round basis. But, um, you know, it's like with college. Circle back to that. How many, how many college teams really put people in the pros? At the, the Division three men's doubles, you know, I was really disappointed in watching that because it was like every time it was just both teams, eye formation, first and second serve, and the server was staying back. But that's not the, I mean, the coaches have taken those teams to the national championship. It's not a shot at them, but it's like when those young kids, are, they've got to the point where they're in a national championship. They're in the finals. So you know that the parents' a mountain of work, the kids' a mountain of work, blood, sweat, and tears, but they did not work on playing doubles the right way when they were younger. And that, that's our industry. You know, that's our industry. And, it, you know, it comes down to, well, I want to make everybody happy. You want to win now. Um, you know, and if you look at it, say, okay, Borg, um, back in the day with the bad grass, where he had such a great athlete, he did come in all the time on grass. But how he hit a backhand volley, and his backhand volley would just die. You know, he, he didn't drive the backhand volley. And years ago, I mean, it's crazy to think that people used to call that a European volley. Because people come in with a continental grip, and the racket head would go way down. Where that the kids who were playing in years ago in California, they were, the courts were white. They were playing on cement. And they were coming in, and they were tagging the volleys. Just tagging the volleys. But, you know, the, the lesson with, with, say, Struff, and I know Andy, we talked about that. He spent a lot of time on the court with, with him because he practices. Uh, Andy spent time with Henry Squire. Uh, he's 33 years old, and he's still getting better. And, you know, I think this is one thing, too, is to be aggressive. Um, I think a lot of times the people that we're trying to influence they think of being aggressive by being, it means you go to the net. But, you know, I mentioned these four players. You take uh, Sampras, Rotolova, Agassi, and Graf. And it's two and two. You have, but they're all aggressive. All four players are aggressive. Where Agassi and Graf were aggressive as a baseliner, and Rotolova and Sampras were aggressive as a net rusher. Um, I think I, what you said about uh, we want to review strokes, I think what you said about, okay, to take players like Alcaraz and go through his strokes. Why don't you comment on that? Yeah, no, we were, uh, I guess you were asked me about people wanting you to review the forehands, the backhands, the serve, you know, stuff that you did, you and Andy did it within like the first 20 podcasts. And I said, you know, why mess with that was really well done why mess with it you know if anything go out there and take individual strokes and and break those down if you want break down the Alcaraz or break down the Sitsipas uh, topspin backhand break down the the Shapovalov serve go off and you know break down the Taylor Fritz forehand return you know go that seems like it's something that's going to be a little bit more educational for those that want to learn about techniques versus just rehashing the same episode. I mean, they can just go back and listen to 
what you guys did uh, two years ago, which was really well done. No, I think that's a good point. Taylor Fritz was playing the player from China, Chang, Shang. And they were just playing so well baseline to baseline. And, no, I think, you know, he could just add to his game. I mean, that's where our last podcast uh, mentioned Tommy Paul, Taylor Fritz, Francis TFO, Mackenzie McDonald playing doubles. I quickly said, you know, that's probably a clinic on how not to play doubles. But when people hear that, it's like, no, they have, I mean, they're all great players. Um, well, but anybody that's saying that is not really, I mean, I guarantee you those guys were betting for dinner for that match. Uh, you know, they're using the doubles there to get ready for, for the singles. I mean, the one that I mentioned to you from two years ago, watching Feliciano Lopez and Tsitsipas playing doubles at the Miami Open and watching Tsitsipas stay back on first and second serve, that was baffling to me, watching him play doubles. I mean, I thought that Feliciano Lopez and them were auditioning for a coach-player pairing. I thought he'd be going, having him coming in. Nothing. So, yeah, I, I, and then he stuck off. I guess he signed on with Philippusis. But I think it's a brain drain where the court's 36 feet wide. So you divide it in half, it's 18 and 18. And if you've got an aggressive partner, you have a partner with a very good serve, when you're serving volume, you don't have to even cover 18 feet. So then you come in, you split step. Now the racket's 27 inches, so let's just say 24. So the racket's about the same length as your arm. So you just, you got four feet this way, and you got four feet this way. You know, but then you were split step in one step. So, um, you know, people just need to study. It's like with, uh, you know, Agassi was a batter and Sampras was a server. And what's your pitcher? Uh, what, thank you. What, what, what does Mike Agassi say that, uh, you know, he's, oh, Andre should have been a golfer. He, he could have had a longer career, made more money. You, know, you just read these things right? where he was upset with Nick Balteri because Nick said, hey, we're just going with the forehand. We're just going to... And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, um, just to reinforce these points, uh, Vic Braden once asked Agassi, you know, why don't you come to the net? And Agassi said, have you seen me volley? Um, even Federer, that I trust my forehand more than I do my volley. So, I mean, do, do people know the numbers? So, okay, you, you're going to serve in volley, and your partner's going to cover more than 18 feet. So you coming in and do the math, but it, it, kids need to start that at a, a really early age. And, um, you know, for years and years, uh, the Canadians, uh, coming back to ice hockey, that was very much my way of life growing up, that the Europeans were, had 10 practices to one game. And, you know, so the, the Canadians are one practice, one game. And the Americans were copying the Canadians. Now, if you look at soccer in America, you know, kids aren't really even playing pickup soccer. They are, they are all over the world. And that's the ratio pretty much is a young kid trying to learn to play soccer in the United States. He's going to one practice in one game. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's funny. I was watching a, a podcast on Jason Williams, the uh, point guard for... I played for the Heat, played for the uh, Memphis Grizzlies, the nickname White Chocolate. Um, and he was 
you know, my father used to always tell me, Pistol Pete Maravich, the best basketball player I've ever seen. So Jason Williams is Pistol Pete-like in the sense of the passes that he would make. And he was talking about how he doubts that he'll ever see a player like him again because there's no creativity. The kids are never going to be on their own with a ball, you know, experimenting, you know, those passes. And that everything is too structured going in there with, you know, their AAU coaches or whatever. So I found that pretty interesting when uh, thinking about it in terms of tennis. Like, there's gone are the days that, you know, guys just go out there and, you know, play five sets with your friends, you know, so. Yeah, I'll come back to this. I said it earlier. Uh, I guess I didn't say it on air. But I was just repeating something you said. Is that I love this line. You said, they're a one-trick pony. And the one-trick pony pretty much is how people play tennis. They're just looking to hit a forehand. You know, clones taught by clowns. Everyone's playing the same. And now, in all fairness, turn the clock back. You take those four young men, Fritz, TFO, Paul, and quiz time. Uh, Mackenzie McDonald. If, biggest word in the dictionary, when they were younger, someone said, no, this is how you play doubles. Yeah, you're going to serve and volley. And in junior tennis, it's like, no, no, you, um, if you don't serve and volley, you lose the point automatically. That's how, that's how practices should be done. Because, you know, as I, I've said a thousand times, a thousand times over, that a kid plays one up, one back as a freshman in high school, what are they going to do when they're a sophomore? They're going to do the same thing. And now that we know more about how the brain works, you know, Jonathan Stokey asking about myelin, um, that's what you're dealing with. You're, the, the athlete's a biocomputer, and you've got to deprogram, reprogram with um, Medvedev. Let's talk about him for a little bit. First thing I would say is uh, you can see in his eyes, you know, wins in Rome, and He's proving to himself, he's proving to the world, but he's so honest in interviews. I'm not very good on volleys. Well, I haven't really done well on clay. But then he says, yeah, but you know, I got to the quarters of the French or whatever. What are your comments on Medvedev? First off, the guy's hilarious in his uh, second or third, probably his third language. I want to say French was his second language. That's right. He is hilarious. He is so funny. His... His interviews are great. His on-court antics are legendary now. Um, you know, I think somebody made a point of it saying that, you know, he says some of these things about being useless on clay probably as a way to take the pressure off of himself. But, I mean, he's he had a great run. I mean, he basically, you know, won this title. No one expected him. I mean, he got seated second now for the French Open. Avoided potentially having to play. Uh, I might still have to do it, but I guess uh, gave himself a little better chance. But um, you know, love his serve, and love watching how creative he is on a tennis court because he's really forcing the issue with somebody. Nobody's going to come forward. He is going to hang back twenty feet behind the baseline and play it his way. And if no one's going to rush him, I mean. I don't want to hear anybody saying that, oh, he plays so so defensive or so terrible, you know. So love watching the guy. Love watching the guy serve. Love watching the guy be creative from the baseline on returns. And 
Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I don't think he's going to win the French, but, you know, stranger things have happened. Well, let's, let's end with that, but let's do, do a couple more things before we end with uh, who, who you think is going to win the French. Medvedev on the serve, he's playing Djokovic maybe three years ago, and Djokovic is just going to town, returning Medvedev's second serve. And I don't think he took the lesson from Rod Laver, but it was a Rod Laver lesson. He's just, he just started hitting two first serves. I mean, he didn't differentiate that much. Um, was he 6'6"? Six, six? He tosses, people don't understand, he tosses so far to the right and so far in front. He's getting better. Uh, that's one thing people have to realize. He's getting better. Like the, He was close to the baseline, playing balls at waist level, playing against Rune. His forehand is much more aggressive than he used to be. He even threw in some drop shots that I'd never seen him hit before. I mean, Rune's getting better, too. What happens for the listeners, you know, the parents don't need to make this mistake that your kid always has to hit with a better player. Don't have your kid be a tennis snob. They can play with anybody and everybody. Put the ball on a dime. Learn to have gears. I think so many kids just... They just play tennis in fifth gear. They just mock five wide open. But when you do play on the tour and the balls are coming deeper, faster, and the frequency level, the consistency is there, you, you just automatically going to start shortening up your swings. You, you have to do that to survive. But I think Medvedev, it's, it, for the juniors, I don't think this happens, goal-oriented juniors, I don't think that that's what they're looking at at YouTube. They're looking at highlight reels, they love to look at the tweeners and this and that, especially well, the boys. Talking, well, you were talking about TV earlier. Um, you know, I don't think kids watch a full tennis match anymore. No, they don't. Everything's on, you know, you can get little TikTok videos. You can get shortened highlights on YouTube. But, I mean, they don't watch, sit and watch an entire match. They, you know, so, again, by the same token, how are you going to handle, you know, watch. a three-set tennis match where you can't even watch one, one thing to digress, uh, we have had college coaches on. I mean, we've had high school coaches, part-time coaches, uh, adult coaches with junior tennis players, digital dirt. You know, don't put anything stupid on social media because uh, athletic departments will, will dig out and you can get in trouble for that. I think with Medvedev, just the logic, though, um, you know, he just says, well, no, I'm not that good on clay, but I'm, I'm going to show up and I'm going to try to do my best. And yeah. Can you, can we finish the podcast tonight? Can you show me the Medvedev dance once you beat Sissipas? Can you stand and. <laughs> no, I haven't got that one down. I haven't got it. I, I remember it was, it was copying some uh, game, correct? No, he was making fun of Sissipas who. When Sitsipas oh, okay. beat him in Cincinnati, he made his own little dance. And uh, Medvedev being uh, the eternal petty individual, I love it. Yeah, their family is very close. They're, those guys uh, had some close encounters. And uh, I remember Medvedev calling Sitsipas a fake Russian. Right, I know. That was it coming to blows. I mean, it was, uh, but it was great. I mean, then they had the famous one in Australia where... Medvedev was losing it at the official for not calling uh, coaching on the father. And then the greatest line ever, calling him a small cat. That was the... Uh, well, things like that happen in the heat of the motion or the heat of the moment. Uh, it's like with uh, Federer's wife in a match where Federer's playing Warinka. And, uh, you know, they 
they were a little bit upset with each other. But in the end, I've heard Warinka say, uh, no one wants Roger to win uh, more than I do. Um, before we talk about who's going to win the French, by the time this pod- podcast comes out, it'll probably be right in the middle of the French Open. Uh, let's talk about the gal from uh, Russia. Wimbledon, reigning Wimbledon champion. You have yet to master that name, have you? No, no, I'm going to take a shot at Elena Rabakina. There you go. That girl is so good. Mechanics are so good. If you have an eye, you know, we talked last week a little bit about, you know, we have our critics, and and that's a good thing. Um, But, you know, how's it go? To avoid criticism. Criticism. Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. She is so solid. And, you know, people, you know, it's so sad that p- people can't see her, the fundamentals that she displays. What are your comments on her? She won Rome, right? She won Rome. I mean, it's, uh, it was a little bit sad for me to see the, uh, the way the women's event has been decimated here in, uh, in Madrid and Rome or basically... Yeah, the women's final was like at 11 o'clock Rome time. So I think they were better off when they used to have the tournament on their own private week and and not have the mixed weeks. I mean, if you're going to have mixed weeks, have mixed doubles. You know, have something that uh, adds something to the the ticket. But, uh, you know, she did get like three retirements in the draw. I mean, she got a retirement from uh, Kalanina. She got a retirement from Sviatek. So, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate we weren't able to see her finish that match, especially with Fiatek. But, yeah, I mean, look, she's obviously great on hard courts, obviously great on grass, and she's got a chance here at the French. I mean, it's uh, – I, I will say she, I, I'm with you. I, I, I love watching her play versus I'm not as keen to watch like a Sviatek play. I'm not as uh, – doesn't find it as interesting for me. Uh, the Polish girl, Switek, um yeah, the line for Nadal, well, he's from a different planet. You could say that about her. She just is amazing, her movement. Um, you know, I think that's for all tennis players. You know, your mind, your mechanics, but movement. Work on being the best mover possible. But coming back to Coco's forehand, if you look at Switek's forehand, I mean, she has similar issues uh, that is not going to translate into... You know, when you think about people, um, you know, there's basic shots, specialty shots, emergency shots. You could say improvised shots. That, you know, when someone makes that unit turn for a forehand, do they have the options? You know, like, say, when Roger Federer turns, he stay really close to the baseline, and we say, take the racket like a wall to the ball, steal the ace. My favorite line from Bud Collins, the late Bud Collins, but... Um, and in the men's draw, I am going to go off and say now. No Nadal. Rune will win the tournament. I, I was so impressed seeing that draw, actually. I haven't seen the draw yet. I shouldn't say that. So the seeds, I mean, the five through eight seeds, it's a pretty tough field. I think I want to say that it's Sitsipas, Rune, um, Sitsipas, Rune, Rublev and someone else, I forgot. But, I mean, I thought it was a – if the seeds hold up, it's going to be a tough quarter for anybody. So, But I'm going with Holger Rune. So. You, don't think, you don't think Djokovic can win don't you? because of the – you always hear five sets. I mean, it's one thing to beat him in three sets, but to beat him in five. 
I'm going ruin. Don't for all of you gamblers out there, I would tell you to go against my pick and I'm gonna lose big time, but I'm gonna say ruin. What about the kid from Norway? Rude? Yeah. No, he's defending too many points. I'm gonna say He's another guy. Watch his game. It's so solid. It's so basic. It's, uh, simplification is sophistication. I will say that somebody will want to be in the uh, in the rude quarter or in the rude half of the draw. They will, they, that, that will be a part that they want to be in. Well, let's call this podcast This and That. Um, we, we can ask college coaches in our upcoming interviews uh, what they thought of having Division one, Division two, and Division three. I know with rain delays, uh, the one of the events was supposed to be on Tennis Channel, but it wasn't correct. I didn't see the men's final, so yeah, yeah, well, I saw it, but I saw it on NCA.com. I guess it was because because it was played at a different time, and they weren't going to uh, not put the Rome Open on. It was supposed to be was it, was supposed, it to, be, supposed to be Sunday night, I think. Was it because of that, or was it because the Rome final was delayed by rain? I don't know. I'll find out. But I, I just wonder what the coaches would say is that, you know, certainly having, you know, the people running the, the event at the USTA to host it, hats off to them. It had to be a, a, just a nightmare of work to pull that off. But I just, you know, for me, uh, I don't think there's anything better than going to Athens, Georgia to watch the, I agree with you. watch the event there. I know it does favor the University of Georgia, but that's kind of, to me, that's just like such a, great venue for that tournament um but what a display to have uh the all three division one two and three at the same place but thank you very much for your time andres all right steve thanks for having me that was fun no, watching a hockey game with you you got to do that again the uh puck luck the bounce of the puck there are there are some tennis players um bjorn borg ivan lendl there's many people that uh that played uh, Jan Tiriak, that played hockey, that played tennis. Steve throwing rats here at the, at the house. Yeah, that's an inside joke. The Scott Mellenby, the old rink, there's a rat going by. He took a hockey stick, a puck, he shoots the puck at the rat, kills the rat. They read an article about it, and they didn't, there was, I guess, like 500, 800 plastic rats thrown when they would score a goal. And then what happened was... Um, the NHL came together and said delay of game, so they don't do that until after the game. A few people throw some rats out. But um, anyway, listeners, thanks for hanging in there. I hope you got some more nuggets for your tennis treasure chest. And thanks for listening. Again, Andres, thanks for your time. Night. Thanks, Steve. Adios, amigos. Mm-hmm.